Today is December 20th, 2014, and this is episode 171. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts, just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. For the next few episodes, we're going to try something a little different. Ever since we first started hearing about the bit license, I've had this ringing sense of deja vu. Last year, I read a book called The Master Switch by Tim Wu, who now incidentally is running for office in New York. The book talks about the path that disruptive technology, specifically communication, takes over time. And in particular, it tells the story of radio. Today, I'd like to share part one and two out of eight of what I'm calling Radio Dreams, a selected reading from The Master Switch, which is itself a book very much worth reading in its entirety. As the story progresses in future episodes, we'll have commentary from the hosts of Let's Talk Bitcoin, but for now, sit back and enjoy some of the contextual background behind one of the most innovative and open technologies of the early 20th century, so as to more properly appreciate how the capabilities of it were artificially restricted and eventually monopolized through laws and regulations that have led us to the thriving, vibrant radio dial that, in modern days, serves as the entertainment medium of last resort, only used when there are no better options. It wasn't always like that, and it didn't have to be that way, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Here's part one of Radio Dreams. One July afternoon in 1921, J. Andrew White paused before speaking the words that would make him the first sportscaster in history. White, an amateur boxing fan who worked for the Radio Corporation of America, stood ringside in Jersey City, surrounded by more than 90,000 spectators. The boxing ring was but a tiny white square in a teeming sea of humanity. Everyone was waiting for the fight of the century to begin. In the ring, the fighters looked mismatched. The larger was Jack Dempsey, the Manessa Mahler, the reigning heavyweight champion who had grown wildly unpopular for refusing to serve in World War I. George Carpenter, his opponent, had entered the ring to strains of La Marseille and deafening cheers. The French war hero was obviously the crowd favorite. In White's hand, there was something unexpected. A telephone. It was fitted with an extremely long wire that ran out of the station and all the way to Hoboken, New Jersey, to a giant radio transmitter. To that transmitter was attached a giant antenna, some 600 feet long, strung between a clock tower and a nearby building. The telephone White was holding served as the microphone, and the rickety apparatus to which it was connected would, with a bit of luck, broadcast the fight to hundreds of thousands of listeners packed for the day into radio halls in 61 cities. What was planned now sounds quite ordinary, but at the time it was revolutionary, using the technology of radio to reach a mass audience. Today we take it for granted that TV or radio audiences for some performances or sporting events are larger than the live audiences. But before 1921, such a situation had never occurred. This fight, in fact, would mark the first time that more people would experience an event remotely than locally. That is, if everything went according to plan. The idea to broadcast the fight came from a young man named Julius Hopp, manager of concerts for Madison Square Gardens, as well as an amateur radio enthusiast. He wanted to experiment with an application of radio technology that previously only hobbyists had played with, something called radio broadcasting. Hop couldn't do it alone. He found important backing, financial and technical, at the Radio Company of America, RCA, predominantly a military contractor, including its vice president, Andrew White, and more importantly, David Sarnoff, an ambitious young executive and enigmatic personality who would figure centrally in the history of radio. A Russian Jew who had immigrated as a youth, 
Sarnoff had an eye for promising ideas, coupled with a less admirable tendency to claim them as his own. Having managed to funnel several thousand dollars of RCA money to Hop, he and White focused their combined efforts on the Dempsey broadcast. The scale of the effort was unprecedented. But to be absolutely clear, Sarnoff, White, and Hop were in no sense inventing radio broadcasting. They were, rather, trying to bring to the mainstream an idea that amateurs had been fiddling with for years. Just as email has been around since the late 1960s, though reaching the general public only in the 1990s, broadcasting in some form had been occurring as early as 1912, and perhaps even earlier. It was the amateurs, some of them teenagers, who pioneered broadcasting. They operated rudimentary radio stations, listening in to radio signals from ships at sea, chatting with fellow amateurs. They began to use the word broadcast, which in contemporary dictionaries was defined as a seeding technique, quote, cast or dispersed in all directions as seed from the hand in sowing, widely diffused, end quote. The hobbyists imagined that radio, which had existed primarily as a means of two-way communication, could be applied to a more social form of networking, as we might say today. And the amateur needed no special equipment. It was enough to simply buy a standard radio kit. As the Book of Wireless, published in 1916, explains, quote, any boy can own a real wireless station, if he really wants to. If the amateur pioneers had a leader, it was the inventor, Lee DeForest, who by 1916 was running his own radio station, 2XG, in the Bronx. He broadcast the results of the 1916 presidential election and also music and talk for an hour or so each day. QST Magazine, the publication of the American Radio Relay League, reported in 1919 of DeForest Station, quote, We feel it is conservative to estimate that our nightly audience is in excess of 1,000 people, unquote. Back in Jersey City, as the bout began, Dempsey ran at Carpenter, punching hard. You can watch this bout on the internet. And while Carpenter puts up a spirited fight, the larger Dempsey clearly dominates. In the second round, Carpenter breaks his thumb, yet fights on. By round four, Dempsey is insuperable, landing blows to the body and head seemingly at will, as the Frenchman stoops forward, barely able to stand. Then, in White's words, seven, eight, nine, ten. Carpenter is out. Jack Dempsey is still the world's champion. The broadcasters were in fact lucky it was over in just four rounds, for soon after, their equipment blew up. Still, it held together long enough for more than 300,000 listeners to hear the fight in the radio halls. As Wireless Age put it, instantly, through the ears of an expectant public, a world event had been pictured in all its thrilling details. A daring idea had become a fact. What's so interesting about the Dempsey broadcast is that it revealed an emerging medium to be essentially up for grabs. It was, in retrospect, one of those moments when an amateur or hobbyist's idea was about to emerge from relative obscurity with the same force, one might say, as Dempsey's blows raining down on Carpenter. And while not the cause of the extraordinary radio boom to follow, the Dempsey fight, which had taken so many years by surprise, was in some sense its herald. While records are spotty, the number of broadcasting stations jumped from 5 in 1921 to 525 in 1923, and by the end of 1924, over 2 million broadcast-capable radio sets had been sold. Early radio was, before the internet, the greatest open medium in the 20th century, and perhaps the most important example since the early days of newspaper of what an open, unrestricted communications economy looks like. Having begun among some oddballs as a novelty aimed at bringing one's voice and other sounds to strangers via the airwaves, broadcasting was suddenly in the reach of just about anyone, and very soon all sorts of ideas as to what shape it should take from the rather banal to the most utopian, were in contention. 
Let's join Andreas and Stephanie for a recent discussion on the resurgence of the Bitcoin tipping culture. An interesting phenomenon has played out over the last couple of weeks. At first, very gradually, and then increasingly noticeable. We've seen a resurgence of a tipping culture within Bitcoin. Something that for a long time had been dormant. And something that had been the foundation of a lot of Bitcoin activity a couple of years ago. And also had been the driving force behind the Dogecoin community, tipping, driving both adoption, evangelism, expanding the scope of users, familiarizing people with the interface, and as a day-to-day demonstration of the power of digital currencies, now is back with a vengeance in the Bitcoin space, especially over the last week. Uh, we're seeing one particular tipping platform, Change Tip is now dominating the scene on Reddit and expanding well beyond the Bitcoin Reddit subgroup and many other groups with thousands and thousands of tips being given out. So that's interesting. Yeah, I I hear a little bit of skepticism in your voice, Andreas. Maybe you're being reminded of our recent chat with um, Ben Dornberg about how um, tipping was used almost as a, more of a bribe in some cases with large tips being given to sh- essentially shut people up. Was I right in picking up on that? Well, I think that's always a risk, but I don't think that's what's happening in this particular case. So certainly tipping, if it's coming in a very concentrated way from one or two participants, is a way to bribe the community into not criticizing other activities. And in the case of Moolah and and Dogecoin, Ryan Kennedy, Ryan Green, Alex Green, Ryan Gentle, or whatever the hell his name is, use tipping very effectively to silence criticism and to generate a lot of goodwill for himself as a marketing tool. And then, of course, we find out that tipping mostly with other people's money, which is a very easy way to be generous. I think we should be skeptical if we see that, but that's not what I'm seeing. What I'm seeing is actually very, very broad-based tipping from a lot of members in the community, and I'm seeing the same thing on Twitter. And coincidentally, I started using, after you know this happening to me a few times, I started using the tipping function on Twitter a bit more this, this last week. So you kind of get swept up in this momentum of people tipping left, right, and center. I think it's great because... Despite the bad things we saw in the Dogecoin community, tipping was one of the big drivers for adoption and also for creating a culture around the currency that was very much about giving. And and I think that's a wonderful culture to generate. So I'm very excited to see a, a resurgence of the tipping culture in Bitcoin. It's really interesting that you say resurgence, Andreas, because I was just thinking back to my first Bitcoins, how I received them. They were a gift. All of my first Bitcoins, actually, probably the first dozens of Bitcoins that I received were gifts. I never actually bought them or um, earned them with my labor or anything like that. It was just tips. And at the time, you know, a Bitcoin was worth two or five bucks or something like that. But it was still, it was really cool to receive them. 
And in some cases, they were given to me just because somebody was excited about Bitcoin and wanted to share some with me so that I could use it and the idea could kind of catch fire in my mind and I could get excited about it. And that totally worked. <laughs> like once I started using Bitcoin, I was hooked and I thought, wow, this is really cool and easy and I'm sold. So if the idea was to evangelize about Bitcoin, then it totally worked on me. And I've started doing that with other people that I've met. I've given them Bitcoins. I always keep a little bit on my phone just so I can send a few millibits to someone who's interested and wants help setting up a wallet wherever I go. But I remember that also there was this survey that went around and I think the survey results were published sometime in like um, 2013, I want to say. And so, so about a couple of years ago. And the survey was a non-scientific poll, readers of Zero Hedge or some blog like that, that I want to say. And they just asked people about their demographic information and what they use Bitcoin for. And so it found that most of the users were male. A lot of them were libertarian leaning and a lot of them were in relationships and atheists and stuff like that. But the interesting thing was the way that people were reporting in the survey that they used Bitcoins, the most common use of Bitcoin was actually as gifts, donations, and charitable contributions. And I really was interested in that result because at the time there was a lot of stuff going around in the media about how Bitcoin was used for drug deals and money laundering exclusively. And I just found it so fascinating that actually the most common self-reported use of Bitcoin was, was for gifts and tips. So yeah, maybe it is a resurgence. And that matches my experience with Bitcoin. I've never used Bitcoin to buy drugs and not really interested in that. But I have spent a lot of Bitcoin in donations and donated tons and tons and tons of Bitcoin. Pretty much 90% of any Bitcoin that's passed through my hands has ended up being redonated to others. As you, I carry a balance on my mobile phone. And when I tell people about Bitcoin who've never heard about it before, I encourage them to open a wallet and I immediately give them some, $2, $3, $5, wherever I can at a time, enough to do a dozen transactions, a dozen small transactions just for testing, which also shows that you can play with Bitcoin in very small amounts and still make it useful. And I've also done the tipping thing. One of the interesting things that happens, though, that I really like about the tipping infrastructure that has emerged is that traditionally, if you give Bitcoin to someone who's new to the space, there is a pretty strong possibility that paper wallets will get lost, that the mobile application on their phone will never be opened again. They'll change phones, forget about it, and that Bitcoin is lost forever. And that's one of the concerns that people have with tipping is that you know, you're giving people Bitcoin who have no interest in Bitcoin, at least at that point. And they may end up just losing it, getting rid of it, throwing it away, not using it. The nice thing about this new tipping infrastructure is that you can extend a tip in Bitcoin. And if the other person doesn't collect it, it reverts back to you. And so that you can tip again with that same amount. But if they do collect it, then they have an amount of money, an amount of Bitcoin associated to their account. But here's the interesting thing. It's associated to their tipping account. So the most natural thing they will do with that is turn around and tip again. Uh, which creates a very, very nice viral phenomenon, especially on social media. So yeah, again, I, I think this is very exciting. I, I think it works very well for the Dogecoin community. It attracts a lot of people. And I think it's a fantastic tool for education and awareness and goodwill. 
And I hope beyond just tipping each other, eventually a lot of it ends up in being related to charitable giving. And, you know, you tip charities too. And I try to do that every now and then, do it in a very public way on the uh, social media because that attracts other people to tip charities with Bitcoin. And then eventually the, the, the charities start asking, well, how do I turn this into dollars now that I've got some in my account and they get interested in Bitcoin? So here's kind of the philosophical question that I'd like to bring up. Is tipping, is tipping creating the right incentives or a good incentive, right? Like if you're tweeting and you're thinking, well, people are going to send me a tip if they like what I say, is the incentive to just say things that no one could disagree with? Is the, is the incentive to only say popular stuff? Is the incentive to say controversial stuff, perhaps? Does it just turn into kind of like a popularity contest? I guess that's what I'm asking. Sort of seems like it, it kind of doesn't matter. We can't make that judgment what is a good or a bad use for it. And really, there are different types of users for different types of tips when it comes to different types of users. I think the type that Andreas identified is primarily new users. And for new users, it does a combination of things. It solves the problem of buy-in, right? Which is like the idea that in order for someone to get their hands on this cool new technology that enables them to do things that are otherwise impossible, they have to actually shell out money. And in the case of something like Bitcoin, you have to do a bit more than that unless you're going to like local Bitcoins. You have to, you know, jump through hoops on exchanges and bank transfers, things like that. It's quite an involved process. So by tipping... You're essentially bypassing all of that. And just like we've said, you know, Bitcoin doesn't matter as far as functionality is concerned. If the price is very, very high or very, very low, it's still just as functional. That's much the same with the tip. If someone's getting it for free, it almost doesn't really matter what the value of it is. It just matters that they have the ability to use it now. And then that can influence, you know, their thinking. And like you said, Stephanie, you know, once you start to understand that, oh, all these things are possible that aren't possible in, in, you know, the rest of the world, then that's when it gets really interesting. If that's, if that's your problem. Seems to me it's a popularity contest, whether you involve tips, at least for some people it is. And I don't think the tipping would really change that behavior. But I really do prefer to give tips to new people. And the best way to do that is to track postings in social media and look for people mentioning Bitcoin, not those who are like, give me, give me Bitcoin, because in most cases, those are not newbies. They're just sock puppet accounts trying to get more and more Bitcoin. But you'll see people expressing curiosity or in some cases expressing skepticism, but informed and mild skepticism. And they're like, I don't know about this Bitcoin thing. It sounds kind of interesting, but I'm not sure. Or, you know, I'd really like to try out this Bitcoin. Where do you think I can buy some? And you see these questions pop up from time to time. If you see it's a legitimate user, if they have a history, if they look like they participate in conversations in general, then, you know, drop them a little tip and say, hey, here's $2. Try it out for yourself. I think it, it makes all the difference in the world. So the other side of tipping is actually something that was really foundational to the start of this show. Let's talk Bitcoin. You know, in the beginning, we posted monetization. Anytime I talk about monetization of the show, it winds up being this big, long thing. I don't want it to be a big, long thing. I just am commenting that one thing we definitely noticed was as the price of Bitcoin went up, as the relative value of it went up, the tips went down and not just down in terms of this would have been like last year during the run up to a thousand. Um, it wasn't just that they were down in terms of the amount, which I would expect, you know, I'd expect the dollar amount to be kept relatively consistent because that's the type of value people are thinking about. But also the number of donations actually went down. 
And so when we relaunched in, uh, I guess it was spring on the new platform, we didn't even really include tipping because it wasn't really, really much coming in uh, from that. And, it, you know, it was a system that's, you know, a little bit further out. So that's kind of where we are now on it. Still, it hasn't been prioritized still. But I mean, Stephanie, you were saying that if the incentives are such that people are, you know, are creating content only that people like, isn't that what a content creator does? I mean, like generally speaking, the point of creating a show is, you know, I, I like hearing my own voice. I like talking to you guys about this stuff, but we're trying to reach people and trying to share ideas with them too. So isn't that what we're doing? And is it okay, you think, for us to be tipped or does that incentivize the wrong thing? No, I mean, I don't really agree with the idea that tipping will incentivize the wrong things. I just think it's really interesting because what I see now is like on social media, for instance, a lot of the people who get shared and retweeted and just get a lot of attention are the ones who say like these super controversial things. And a lot of the times people who share them are like, oh, I totally disagree with this, but I'm going to share it anyway. <laughs> And it just brought up for me, I was thinking about the beginnings of Let's Talk Bitcoin, Adam. And I remember you gave a talk or, or we were talking about it on the show one time where you had this idea of, of untipping, basically, which is like you, you might have a podcast or an article or something like that where you've got two tip addresses. One, they can tip if they agree with you and they like what you said. The other, they can tip if they disagree with you. <laughs> so people can see like, you know, what did you think of this article? Thumbs up kind of thing. How many... um Bitcoins are in each of those addresses. I thought that was an interesting idea. But then again, if people don't regularly tip anyway, why would they use something like that? Maybe to have a chance to express their opinion. Actually, so there's, there's like a problem when it comes to doing really small tips. And that's that the, the rate, right? The transaction fee. Like if you're on Let's Talk Bitcoin, you know, and you get, and you want to tip 15 different authors, that's 15 different transaction fees. And if you're just sending 25 cents to each one, then it actually does start to add up. And suddenly you're back to the same. I mean, it's not as bad as credit cards or something like that, but it's, it stops making sense after a certain amount of time. So that was a big reason why we don't have tipping now is because the system that we're moving to is actually one where rather than tipping people Bitcoin or LTB coin that you don't already have, essentially we're building a system where we know that you're going to earn LTB coin you know, at the end of this week, because you're active on the forum and doing this stuff. So we have a kind of idea of how much you're going to earn. And so essentially what we're going to do is let people reallocate what they will be receiving in the future. And that means that we never have to like take possession or, you know, escrow anything or do anything like that. But at the same time, they pay no transaction fees. And it's just accounting in our books that we reckon every week when we do the uh, disbursement of the LTB listener rewards. So it, uh, you get where I'm going with this? Yeah, I do. It's an interesting way to address the costs of sending small micropayments because that's something people have been talking about for a really long time. Like, what if you could pay five cents of Bitcoin to watch a video or read an article or listen to a podcast or something like that? People do that. Or just if you could listen to the podcast for free, but then you could send them 10 cents as a tip if you like the show or didn't like the show or whatever. And we've never really reached that watershed moment where a lot of people are doing it. And I honestly think it might have something to do with just the cost of sending all those things. Like there isn't really any Bitcoin software that I know of, Bitcoin wallet software that I know of, where you can basically put in a bunch of different addresses. Like let's say you wanted to send 25 tips to everybody on the Let's Talk Bitcoin network and you wanted to send them each 10 cents. Can you do that in a single transaction? You put in all these different addresses and you only have to hit send once and type in your password once if you have a password. 
I don't know that that's able to be done right now. All right. At least I don't know how to do it myself. There's always the cost of starting up the the software program, whatever program you're using and unlocking it, uh, putting in your pin or password if you have that. Or there's the cost of worrying about if you have an unencrypted wallet, someone's taking your bitcoins or whatever. So that needs to be addressed. Yeah. I don't think it's a it's a problem really with the transaction fee. It's really a matter of the wallets don't have good minimum fees for small amounts. And I think tipping programs that are specifically geared towards tipping and tipping infrastructure can handle that very, very nicely. First of all, a lot of the tipping is currently off blockchain, but even if it was on blockchain, today the minimum fee that is assessed by most wallets is a tenth of a millibit, and that's because that is the default on the Bitcoin Core or reference client. A tenth of a millibit at the moment is 0.35 cents. So you could do 10 transactions for three and a half pennies. I don't think that's a huge cost. You can do microtransactions with that. But keep in mind, that's just a default setting. If you try to send transactions with a hundredth of a millibit, which would be 0.03 cents, then you could send 10 transactions for a third of a penny. And those transactions on average go through after two or three blocks and they are carried by the network. So even a smaller fee than the minimum default on the Bitcoin Core software works in practice. The problem is that the wallets don't give you an option to do that. And in many cases, they lag behind the fee decreases. So you'll see mainstream wallets today that charge one millibit fee, even though the minimum has been decreased by 90% already, and don't really give you the option to go even lower on fees. So that's why I think the specialized tipping infrastructure really makes a difference because you can make this go viral, you can increase the rate of tips, and you can really enable much smaller tips without having to worry about the transaction. You know, this exact thing happened to me yesterday. (laughs) I was beta testing a service where you would pay basically a microtransaction to watch a video. So I logged in and the video that I wanted to watch cost 0.18 millibits. So I said, okay, that's fair. That's very, that's what, 0.3 cents, something like that. Very cheap. But the transaction fee was 0.1 millibits. And I couldn't, (laughs) with the software I was using to send it, I couldn't pay less than 0.1 millibits for a transaction fee, which was what I was paying to watch the video. (laughs) So I remember feeling like kind of resentful about that. I was like, oh, I wish I could send it with no transaction fee, but this client won't let me Uh, screw it, whatever. I'll do it, but I won't be happy about it. So I think you're right. That is there. And it's, it's annoying to not be able to decrease those transaction fees on the microtransactions. I wouldn't be surprised if the core client sees another 90% reduction in the minimum fee over the next year. So I would expect we're going to be looking at 0.01 millibit fees in the next year. And gradually, as you see this market-based mechanism for fee calculation spreading to more wallets, we're going to be able to see that the market can support much lower fees. At the moment, keep in mind, the fees are negligible. Of the poor miners don't really mine for fees. All they provide is a protection against spamming the blockchain. But that also means that at the moment, we're not seeing the full potential of micropayment platforms for tipping or content that we could see with an even lower fee. That's a hard problem. How do you differentiate between spam and micropayments? Oftentimes, they're really hard to distinguish, you know? 
I don't think they are hard to distinguish. Spam doesn't have a fee, and micropayments do. And if uh, you're not even willing to pay a tiny fee, then it probably is spam, and vice versa. If you're willing to pay a fee, then it's useful, at least to you at that level. And I think we can get much closer to that. I mean, you're right, Andres, but for some people, they do consider just small transactions to be spam. Like, look at the big dust-up over, like, Satoshi Dice you know, years ago and annoyed about it, those small transactions. And a lot of people called them spam. And some people said, no, they're not spam. They're This is part of the game. If it has a fee and if people were willing to pay the fee and people were willing to include it into the block for that fee, then by definition, it's not spam. But that's just me. Well, that's the agnostic principle, I think, of or the neutral principle of Bitcoin is that that's the definition is that the difference between spam and a microtransaction is that a microtransaction pays the fee and spam doesn't. So they're very actually easy to look at something and you don't have to necessarily know what the transaction is doing. All you have to do is check if it paid the fee, if it paid the fee, then it's good. But Andreas, I'm curious, it seems that you're okay with some degree of off-chain transactions in the tipping infrastructure, which means, again, it's something I've gone back and forth with a lot because what you're doing by that is essentially centralizing risk, right? onto that tipping thing, and it essentially becomes an exchange. The quick follow-up that I wanted to ask on that was that there have been a number of spam attacks that most people consider spam on the Bitcoin blockchain. The Enjoy Sochi attack comes to mind where the spammer was sending millions of little one Satoshi transactions. How different would it be if each of those trans- one Satoshi transactions also had a one Satoshi fee attached? I mean, they're paying a fee, and actually they're paying as much of a fee as the Bitcoin that they're sending. Is it still spam? If the miners accept it, no, it's not spam. If the miners are willing to use it, if the miners are willing to put it in the block, then it's not spam. But I mean, that's a controversial position. And a lot of people think that it is spam and you should only be using transactions to signal things. You should be using transactions only to transfer value, which I think is splitting hairs because as far as I'm concerned, transferring value is signaling things. It's all speech. I think we could we could say. Right. And most people's definitions of what is spam are arbitrary. And something like the Enjoy Sochi attack, let's say it had transaction fees on each of those little transactions. I think a lot of people, it would fit their social definition of spam, like someone sending me unsolicited marketing or unsolicited something. Someone's reaching out to me in a way that I did not ask for and did not want. But then again, it it doesn't fit the technical definition of spam because it's contributing to the Bitcoin network. It's paying a fee. I think really this is a matter of degrees. In the long run, there will be some transactions that are too small and people consider them not worth spending a fee on. And in those cases, we're going to see centralized infrastructures. In the end, I think the question of spam and fees is a matter of degrees. And we're going to see the the minimum fees decrease. But at the same time, there will always be some activities that cannot be meaningfully executed with a minimum fee. And those will either have to uh, travel without fees and uh garner the ire of those who think they're spam, or they're going to have to get aggregated off blockchain, leading to some provider centralization. But keep in mind, we're not trying to achieve perfection here. We're comparing with reality. And the reality is that even if you can only do 25 cents as a minimum payment viably today on Bitcoin. That is still smaller than any other mainstream payment network out there. 
can't do that with credit cards, can't easily do that with PayPal. And so the ability to do that is already wonderful and miraculous, and it's only getting better. And so what if things that are smaller than that have to be centralized and taken off blockchain? We'll move the fee structure down as we optimize. That's the overall trend. And then those will go on blockchain too. And then we'll have to gripe about even smaller fees and even smaller transactions that can't be done. So I think it's a matter of progress. We've already seen tremendous year in terms of making a much broader range of microtransactions possible in Bitcoin. And already it's far better than any other payment network. You know, I think just as a final thought, it would be really interesting if listeners could write in to us about uh, their experiences with tipping in the Bitcoin space. If they're tipping more now or more earlier, you know, I mean, just generally, like, what what is your personal journey as a listener through this project? You can visit the Let's Talk Bitcoin.com forums and post it there. You can comment in the show notes or you can send an email to any of us, our first names at Let's Talk Bitcoin.com. This episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin is brought to you by CryptoKit.com the easiest, fastest way to send Bitcoins right from your browser. That's K-R-Y-P-T-O-K-I-T dot com if you'd like to learn more. Today's magic word is dream. That's D-R-E-A-M. Dream. You've got until the 24th of December to visit letstalkbitcoin.com or the Let's Talk Bitcoin iPhone app to enter it for your share of the listener rewards. This is part two of Radio Dreams, a selected reading brought to you by Let's Talk Bitcoin from The Master Switch, which is a book written by Tim Wu that I highly recommend. The Open Age of American Radio When in the course of human affairs things go wrong, the root cause is often described as some failure to communicate, whether it be between husband and wife, a general and a frontline commander, a pilot and a radio controller, or among several nations. Better communication, it's believed, leads to better mutual understanding, perhaps a recognition of a shared humanity, and the avoidance of needless disaster. Perhaps it's for this reason that the advent of every new technology of communication always brings with it a hope for ameliorating all the ills of society. The arrival of mass broadcasting inspired, in the United States and around the world, an extraordinary faith in its potential as a benefactor, perhaps even a savior of mankind. And while the reasons may not be readily apparent, such belief is crucial to understanding the long cycle and the development of information media. For it's not just the profit motive that drives the opening up of a medium. There's typically a potent mix of both entrepreneurial and humanitarian motives. Those who grew up in the late 20th century have known the latter sort of idealism mainly as it manifests itself on the internet, in grand collaborative projects like the blogosphere or Wikipedia, and also in such controversial undertakings as Google's digitization of great libraries. This impulse is part of what has attracted thinkers like Lawrence Lessig, originally a constitutional theorist, to internet studies, examining the anthropological and psychological consequences of complete openness and the promise it holds. Scholars such as Harvard's Yochi Benkler, Eben Moglin, and many others have devoted considerable attention to understanding what moves men and women to produce and share information for the sake of some abstract good. Of course, the human urge to speak, create, build things, and otherwise express oneself for its own sake, without expectation of financial reward, is hardly new. In an age that's radically commoditized content, it's well to remember that Homer had no expectation of royalties. 
nor has the fact of payment for many types of information, books, newspapers, music, extinguished the will to communicate unremunerated. Well before the internet, in a world without paid downloads, before even commercial television, the same urge to tinker and to connect with others for the pure good of it gave birth to what we now call broadcasting, and practically defined the medium in its early years. In the magazines of the 1910s, you can feel the excitement of reaching strangers by radio, the connection with thousands, and the sheer wonder at the technology. What you don't hear is any expectation of cashing in. Here's Lee DeForest addressing young people on the joys of the wireless. Quote, If you haven't a hobby, get one. Ride it. Your interest and zest in life will triple. You'll find common ground with others, a joy in getting together, an exchange of ideas which only hobbyists can know. Wireless is, of all hobbies, the most interesting. It offers the widest limits, the keenest fascination, either for intense competition with others, near or far, or for quiet study and pure enjoyment in the still night hours as you welcome friendly visitors from the whole wide world, end quote. What exactly were the hopes for radio? In the United States, where broadcasting began, many dreamed it could cure the alienating effects of a remote federal government. Look at a map of the United States and try to conjure up a picture of what home radio will eventually mean, end quote, wrote Scientific American's editor of the time in 1924. Quote, All these disconnected communities and houses will be united through radio as they were never united by the telegraph and the telephone. The President of the United States delivers important messages in every home, not in cold, impersonal type, but in living speech. He's transformed from what is almost a political abstraction, a personification of the Republic's dignity and power, into a kindly father talking to his children. There was even, perhaps unexpectedly for an electronic medium, a hope for the elevation of verbal discourse. Quote, There's no doubt whatever that radio broadcasting will tend to improve the caliber of speech as delivered at average political meetings, read a column from the 1920s in radio broadcast. Quote, the flowery nonsense and wild rhetorical excursions of the soapbox spellbinder are probably a thing of the past if a microphone is being used. The radio listener, curled comfortably in his favorite chair, is likely to criticize the vituperations of the vote pleader quite severely. Woe be unto the candidate who depends for public favor upon wild rantings and tearings of hair. End quote. There was even hope for a more cultured society. Quote, a man need merely light the filament of his receiving set and the world's greatest artists will perform for him, said Alfred N. Goldsmith, the director of research at RCA in 1922. Quote, whatever he desires, whether it be opera, concerts, songs, sporting news, or jazz, the radio telephone will supply it, and with it he will be lifted to greater appreciation. We can be certain that a new national cultural appreciation will result. The People's University of the Air will have a greater student body than all our universities combined. All of these early aspirations partake of the idealistic expectation that a great social interconnectedness via the airwaves would improve the individual, freeing him from his baser, unmediated impulses and thus enhancing the fellowship of mankind. Such an intuition, of course, is not limited to communications technology. It's a tenet of many religions that the distance between the individual and his fellows is an unnatural source of suffering, to be overcome. Perhaps this is why some were prepared to ascribe the miraculous potential of the new medium not to human cleverness, but to providence. Quote, Radio proves the truth of the omnipotence of the Almighty, wrote radio dealer editor Mark Casper in 1922. Quote, when the Bible tells us God is omnipresent and sees all we do and knows all our thoughts, we can now better realize that if we, mere humans, can, quote, listen in and hear people talk all over the earth with a radio set a foot or too long, 
What power must we ascribe to the Almighty? Can we longer doubt his omnipresence and omnipotence? Behold the all-seeing eye. End quote. The power of an open technology like radio broadcasting to inspire hope for mankind by creating a virtual community is the more remarkable considering that radio was yet far from reaching its full potential as a communications medium. In fact, what it seemed to promise was, if anything, more thrilling than the present wonders. In DeForest's words, radio, quote, is the coming science, is moving ahead faster, possibly than any other. He urged men to take up radio work because it offers a means of entertainment second to none, gives useful instruction that can be made to produce tangible results later on, keeps everyone interested, enables you to get the news of the world by wireless, and provides a pastime and hobby that will get the busy man's mind into other channels. One must stress that it was not merely technological wizardry that set people dreaming, it was also the openness of the industry then rising up. The barriers to entry were low. Radio in the 1920s was a two-way medium accessible to most any hobbyist, and for a larger sum, any club or other institution could launch a small broadcast station. Compare the present moment. Radio is hardly our most vital medium, yet it's hard if not impossible to get a radio license, and to broadcast without one is a federal felony. In 1920, DeForest advised, quote, Obtaining the license is very simple and costs nothing, end quote. As we shall see, radio becomes the clearest example of a technology that has grown into a feebler rather than a stronger facilitator of public discourse, the vaunted vitalities of talk radio notwithstanding. But let's not exaggerate the purity of early radio. Its founders and commercial partners had a variety of motives, not excluding profit. In the early 1920s, publications such as Radio News published lists of all radio stations in operation, with their frequencies and what one might expect to hear on them. This was a forerunner to the once hugely profitable TV guide. Such listings showed that many stations were run by radio manufacturers, such as Westinghouse, the pioneer of the ready-to-plug-in model, and RCA, both of which had an obvious interest in promoting the medium. Still, many stations were run by amateurs. Radio clubs, universities, churches, hospitals, poultry farms, newspapers, the U.S. Army and Navy, one was even run by the Excelsior Motorcycle Company of Seattle, Washington. The choices were dizzying. Quote, a list of all that can be heard with a radio receiver anywhere within 300 miles of greater New York would fill a book, explained one publisher of listings. Quote, at any hour of the day or night, with any type of apparatus adjusted to receive waves of any length, the listener will hear something of interest. A whole class of stations arose, for instance, just to broadcast jazz, which was otherwise inaccessible to most middle-class fans outside of the urban centers where the art developed. As few recordings of radio in the 1920s survived, however, one must not romanticize the medium by supposing the quality of offering to rival the diversity. Station schedules extended but a few hours a day, Content was limited to whatever broadcasters could wangle, whether starving musicians, gramophone recordings, or opinionated talkers. Yet we can imagine the wonder of simply tuning in, never knowing quite what one might hear as they surf the untamed world of the dial. By its nature, early American radio was local, and hence the roots of localism in broadcasting. With an average range of 30 miles or so, an amateur radio station in, say, Seattle was not likely to have a national listenership. Stations that could reach the far corners of the country didn't yet exist. The outer limit was represented by an event like the Dempsey-Carpentier fight, a sensation with a maximum signal range of 200 miles. And so, with no means to connect to other stations and limited broadcast wattage, radio stations made a virtue out of the necessity to be local. No baseball game or concert taking place nearby was too small to be a broadcast event. A local pastor could always count on his sermon being heard by more individuals than those sitting in the pews before him. There was no such thing as national radio, public or private. 
and for as long as such limitations persisted, so did the idealism surrounding radio. Even David Sarnoff, the future president of RCA, remarked, quote, I regard radio broadcasting as a sort of cleansing instrument for the mind, just as the bathtub is for the body. Thanks for listening to episode 171 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content for today's show is provided by Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, and Adam B. Levine. Music for this episode was provided by Jared Rubens and General Fuzz. This episode was edited by Denise Levine and Adam B. Levine. Thanks for listening. <laughs>